talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Hey, why not? Let's keep the long weekend just going. Let's keep it going. Through July and August. Huh? It's shaggy, baby. It's summer. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Dad and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And speaking of summer, speaking of summer, don't forget, hit our, uh, hit our website. You can enter our Summer Photo of the Week contest. You probably got a couple of good picks from this past weekend, I'm guessing. Uh, on the line, your chance to uh, uh, four water park tickets. Uh, passes for Bingham's Park as well. A gift card for Boston Pizza at Bingham's. Also, four passes to African Lion Safari could be yours. Courtesy of Attractions Ontario and Hamilton's uh, News. Today's Talk 900 uh, CHML. Jump in. Love to hear from you. It starts on our website, 900CHML.com. Have some fun this summer. Hey, did you notice the gas prices have gone down? You know we're getting hosed on a regular basis if we start screaming and yelling because we're excited that the gas prices have gone down below two bucks a liter. Woohoo! Yeah, baby! Yeah, look at that! Here we go! Yay! Sail! Flashing blue light! Follow this! Uh, yeah, I- incredible that uh, to see them go down. And, and But again, I mean, it's still unbelievably high. Uh, but I guess uh, a bit of relief is uh, better than no relief at all, right? And uh, here's hoping that the feds are listening and uh, and pass along the savings, uh, too. Uh, on that note, uh, I hope you had a great Canada Day. We have a little clip of our uh, Prime Minister, um, you know, it's telling us what Canadians already know about each other. Listen, he, he, listen, and he'll tell you about what you're like. My friends, Canada is strong because of our diversity. No matter what our faith is, where we were born, what color our skin is, what language we speak, or whom we love, we are all equal members of this great country. And today, we celebrate the place we all call home. Now, I know for some, our country's historic wrongs can make that difficult. But while we can't change history, we can put in the work to build a better future, one that reflects our values of hope, resilience, kindness, respect, and generosity. Generation after generation, Canadians have shown that we can deliver on those values. We did it when we signed our charter in 1982. We did it when we took care of each other during the pandemic, and we do it every day when we welcome refugees with open arms. Today is an opportunity for us all to recommit ourselves to those values. Values that the Maple Leaf represents. Because our flag is more than a symbol. It's also a promise. A promise of opportunity. A promise of safety for those fleeing violence and war. And a promise of a better life. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, How long ago did he stop? Uh, you know, and, and it's great. Uh, 
you know, but but same old, same old, over and over again, telling us how great we are, how what to do, you know, and then before that it was, you know, the flags, and we got to reclaim our flag. Reclaim what flag? I've still got the same flag. I'm not reclaiming anything. What, 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 you know, I mean, it's amazing. Before the Canada Day, well, you know, what about the flag? We got to take it back from the protesters. And, you know, uh, a bunch of Trump wackos uh, stormed uh, the Capitol January 6th, waving all kinds of flags and Trump flags and American flags. Do you think the uh, good friends south of the United States right now who uh, are celebrating their July 4th holiday, do you think they're arguing about their flag? Do you think they're worried about taking their flag back from someone who has a different feeling about the flag than they do? Americans who, you know, if you drive down any, you know, small town street, you see them hanging from all their porches. Do you think they're having the same discussion about this? Enjoy your Canada Day. Enjoy it. Hope you did. And uh, feel proud. Feel great of, of and happy that we live where we live. We're fortunate. And we we... We're blessed with the opportunity that we that we have here. Um, but yeah, uh, let's move forward. Let's keep going. Let's keep rocking. Let's not let, let's not slow down. Let's not uh, wallow in what we've just come out of over the last two and a half years. I think people's priorities have really changed, and I think they want more go and less show. I think they want more. Uh, substance and less form and um, you know after a while you kind of hear the the same stuff over and over again and um, and you kind of wonder who is in this for us who is helping us get ahead who is making it better I mean because you could take that clip and you could have played it at the very first election campaign and it all sounds good but it doesn't really help us much but I guess it is a time or was a time to reflect and feel how fortunate we are and uh, how blessed we are to live in a country as great as Canada that um, will solve the problems that it faces, will move on, will, uh, of course, uh, advance and continue to be the great country that it always is. I don't really believe we're going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, and, and, you know, as long as we keep looking forward and keep trying to get better, I think the uh, the past mistakes will, I won't say take care of themselves, but the more we learn about them, the better we become. We don't repeat the same stuff. All right, let's move on. That's my Canada Day uh, speech. Hope you had a great one. We've got a fabulous show coming up. Uh, we're going to start off uh, by leaving the planet and going to Mars. Paul Delaney is going to join us about that, talk about what's going on. Also, uh, wait a sec, just go open your window now. Do you smell it? Can you smell it? Can you smell the corpse flower? The green? Can you smell that? Yeah, Max got a stinky flower on their hands. We're going to, you know, it's radio, but we'll do the best we can. Uh, talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, fourth doses. Many are saying, hey, you know, uh, can we get those now? Is it possible? Should we be rolling up our sleeves? Do we have to wait till it's uh, this time, that time, whatever, and this age group, what have you? We'll have that discussion coming up a little later on as well. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus Prof- uh, Astronomy, York University. Find out what is happening uh, in space specifically on Mars, and China's looking for Earth 2.0.
but haven't we all? Uh, Paul Delaney with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. So let's start with uh, China announcing its plans to search for another Earth-like planet. Haven't we kind of been doing this ever since we started looking at the sky? You could argue that, absolutely. I, I don't think this is such a, a great, a, a surprising announcement from uh, China, but they're obviously becoming more involved, more interested in this search with you know, looking for both habitable planets as well as the search for life, as well as the connection with SETI and so on. They're, they're sort of playing catch up with what we've been up to for the last 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. Pick your time frame years. That was my next question. How far behind are they? How far ahead is NASA? Well, I, I, bit bit hard to say. We've certainly been searching for life in our solar system very diligently with NASA probes over the last 30 years, particularly Mars. China put a rover on Mars last year, so you could arguably say they're playing catch up very, very quickly in the search for life on the red planet. But Mars isn't the only place in our own solar system where life could be found. We're thinking about Europa. We're thinking about Titan, uh, some of the satellites that are in the outer solar system. We've got a probe called JUICE, which is heading in that direction very shortly, uh, the Europa Clipper. So, yeah, you could say that NASA is still well and truly in front if it's a race in that regard. Looking at exoplanets in every direction, everybody is looking there. It's not just NASA tuning in to potential signals from ET, the uh, SETI Institute, many differing organizations are doing that. So in that regard, China turning their attention towards those activities, they're really not that far behind. Is this more of a uh, something to help them domestically as far as science research, or is this about exploration in space for them? Is is it, I, I guess, leading the space exploration or more for them uh, research, development, that sort of thing? I think it's both. There's no question that anytime you engage the space arena, it helps your local economy. It certainly helps your local science community. There is no doubt. I mean, you look look at the United Arab Emirates. They launched a probe to Mars last year, making sure that they had the infrastructure at home to be able to do it. And that infrastructure, of course, means really well-paying jobs. It means career opportunities for the uh, recent graduates and so on. There's no question that space endeavors is worth billions of dollars to the local community. And to be able to have control of your own space missions is just absolute gravy as far as the local science community is concerned. We live in a very integrated, from a science perspective, if not a political perspective, a very integrated community these days. There is a lot of good information which is freely shared in scientific literature. And in that sense, China, the US, Australia, Canada, Everybody has access to that information. But if you're developing your own instrumentation to go out and make a very specific search, obviously you get first crack at all of that data that comes back. And that really is very exciting for the scientific community. I think there's also a propaganda aspect of it. NASA has led the charge in space exploration. ESA is certainly right up there these days. China wants it known that they have the hardware, the technology, the initiative, the drive if you will, to compete on a level playing field with those other players. So obviously we know we're heading back to the moon, pit stop for Mars, that sort of thing. What's going on Mars? What's going on on Mars right now? And explain the need to dig or excavate. 
<laughs> well, it's certainly been a busy year and a half. As I indicated, the UAE is there. China and its rover is there. Perseverance and Ingenuity, our little uh, helicopter, they are there. The circumstantial evidence that Mars was once a very habitable environment continues to build. We're creating samples with Perseverance that ESA and NASA will bring back, if all goes well, by around about 2030 or 2031. And there's a bit of a space race going on there. China has signaled they want to bring back sample return from Mars uh, and PIP, if you will, ESA and NASA. We'll see whether that plays out. I think the answer to whether or not life did exist on Mars, whether or not life does exist on Mars, is going to be found on laboratories on Earth. The sample return missions bringing back potentially tens of kilograms of rocks from a variety of really habitable type locations on Mars, that is going to be the answer to the, the billion dollar question of whether or not life did or does exist on Mars. Hence the need to dig. <laughs> Are you expecting any surprises from any of this, or is it just confirmation of what scientists already probably know? I think the science community is split as to whether or not Mars possesses life. I think a lot of us are of the view that uh, primordial life likely did exist on Mars back early in the days of the solar system's formation. Mars was a more habitable world than Earth was four billion years ago. We believe that the Martian environment probably stayed habitable for 500 million, maybe even a billion years. My sort of gut feeling, and that, that's all it is, gut feeling, is that if we could create life on Earth from those sorts of conditions back three and a half billion years ago, why not Mars? Whether or not that life has survived to this day, given how harsh the Martian environment is, that's certainly a very open question. And uh, you know, life is very tenacious. Extremophiles on this planet certainly have shown how to survive in the harshest of environments. Well, Mars has been in that, that field test for three billion years, a very harsh environment. I'd like to believe that life still has a foothold on Mars. Um, we're talking microbial life here. We're not talking beavers, moose, or, or any multicellular <laughs> uh, creatures here. But if Mars was able to generate life in and around the same era as Earth did, then it's a big, big indicator to me that life is common throughout the Milky Way galaxy. And that's perhaps the ultimate question. You find primitive life on Mars and the case is made very strong that life exists in a multitude of places in our galaxy. Mm. Paul Delaney with us, uh, professor of astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, often when we go into a florist or, or what have you, and we purchase flowers for somebody, whatever, it's not all they're beautiful, the aroma, they smell, and fill up the house. Oh, it's amazing. But what if you had a flower that smelled like rotting meat? I guess maybe there is the perfect occasion for that. I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, Arthur, the corpse flower, is uh, is at McMaster's greenhouse, and everybody can't wait to get in there and have a whiff and find out what all the fun is about and what all the commotion. So let's bring in Dr. Susan Dudley, Professor, Department of Biology, McMaster University, and is with us now. Susan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm doing very well. So tell us about Arthur. Uh, is is Arthur stinky yet? Is uh, Has this started, this process? Where are we here? 
So really exciting, about two o'clock this afternoon, we realized Arthur is really opening. So not a drill. It will be open <laughs> across tonight and tomorrow. So and it will be beautiful. So uh, describe this, because I've seen the, the shots on your website. It's quite large. Yes. Yeah, so Arthur is 1.97 meters, taller than most people, um, skinnier maybe, um, and he's got this kind of goth air to it when it opens up, too. Um, so there's this slow opening process, and we're going to start to get the smell as the evening progresses. So when when does this you start when do you start to notice the smell once it is fully bloomed? Yes, but it's in the process of blooming, so I expect that we'll start to have whiffs. We're still wearing masks in the greenhouse, so a little <laughs> harder to get that faint faint smell of rotting meat, but And how and how often does this happen? So for us, pretty often, because we actually have four that are large enough to bloom, for each one, they are going to bloom like every two to three years. And how bad is it? Is it noticeable or is it just like any other flower until you stick your nose up to it? You go, you know, then you realize, but instead of a beautiful smell, it's not quite as nice. <laughs> Yes, it, it doesn't want to attract bees or butterflies. It wants carrion beetles and blowflies. Right. Um, and so it will actually flood the entire greenhouse tonight and tomorrow morning. So the whole greenhouse will reek. And after that, it will start to fade until you only smell it when you're right up close to the flower. But when you walk in tomorrow morning, you're going to, oh, yeah, it's blooming. You're going to tell. Yes. You can tell. Yes, definitely. And explain to people why it does this in, in similar to attracting, uh, you know, the, what uh, nice smelling flowers or plants attract. What is the purpose here? So the purpose is pollination. Plants need pollinators or some, something to move pollen around. These guys use flies. So they, they have this kind of purpley green color that is mimicking apparently rotting meat to, um, to the flies. And the smell is definitely corpse-like. So um, would, uh, would there be flies on this or attracted to it? I mean, obviously it's in a greenhouse, so it's protected uh, compared to, say, if it was outside. Uh, yes, we'll still have some right next to the, uh, to the graduate student bar. So we, we, they, there are flies in the vicinity and we've seen them around, mm -hmm. um, flowers in the past, but there's no pollination happening because there isn't another flower in bloom a few kilometers around that they might be coming from, like right. there would be in Sumatra where it's from. I was just about to ask you that. What is the history of this plant? So, yeah, I mean, our history is we bought them from a greenhouse, which got them from Wisconsin, which had a successful boom. But originally they come from Sumatra, where they are threatened in the wild. And they are, you know, pretty interspersed in nature. And so to enhance the probability of getting pollen, they not only make this stink, but they actually heat up to send it higher into the atmosphere to attract more more flies 
Wow. So are there, in the wild, would there be groups of these together or would they be spread out? I think probably a combination of some clumpiness and some spread out. As far as we can see, there's no kind of seasonal pattern in bloom, although apparently there are few other in the world that are blooming right now. Um, But we've had them bloom in midwinter as well as spring as well as summer. Now, will you know if they're going to, obviously, like a flower goes through a cycle, would this, um, would you know when they are about to do this? Uh, Would you be expecting it every three years or so? Uh, Or or does it come by a surprise some seasons? It's pretty much a surprise because they're not very seasonal. And then when you first see the bud, you can't tell if it's going to be another leaf or if it's going to be a flower. How difficult are they to maintain? How fragile a plant is this? They they need a lot of water, a lot of humidity, sun, fertilizer. So they're really a greenhouse plant. I mean, they get too tall for anyone's house. You know, so you need a big greenhouse to hold them. But within that, they're pretty robust. And you'd have to wonder what the neighbors would say, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. That, now, I, how do animals react to this plant? So that I don't know. I mean, we haven't had the opportunity to bring any animals in to see beyond the, I mean, the answer liking it. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know if we'll come through the front door. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not going in there. Um, so you're <laughs> expecting this afternoon, you're, you're going to start to notice things. Yes, and we're open so people can come visit and see what's happening. And what is the reaction from people that show up? People want to smell the stink. Um, <laughs> surprise. Some people are afraid of selling it. Many people are, like, disappointed if they don't smell it. I mean, uh. we found from experience that it's really that first 24 hours where you can smell it right. strongly. And people who come after that are sad. It doesn't really smell that bad, they're saying. Uh, yeah, that'd be funny. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They want it to smell worse. Uh, so yes, how big absolutely. is the window? It, it's a it's a day window, two-day window of when it does actually stink? Uh, it's a, it's about a day, day and a half where it does actually stink. Um, actually, strongest in the first 12 hours. So tonight and tomorrow morning, that's, that's the optimum window. And it's also most beautiful then. All of ours close up after 24 to 36 hours. Um, we think as a way of kind of favoring transfer of pollen from the male flowers to flies. Wow, fascinating and stinky. Uh, McMaster Bio Greenhouse, you can check out their Instagram uh, uh, page and, and see all about Arthur. And then, uh, of course, go in the next 24 hours and have a whiff. Uh, Susan, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with Arthur moving forward, and hopefully you get lots of people coming out to smell. Okay, thank you very much. Dr. Susan Dudley. I don't think I've ever said that to anybody before. Uh, Professor, Department of Biology, McMaster University. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, as we, um, I don't want to, do you want to talk about the fall? No, I mean, we're still, it just, summer just started. It really did, like just the other day. 
it, it, it seems. Uh, anyway, um, as we get into fall, there's more chatter about uh, COVID-19 possibly uh, making another comeback. Now, obviously, uh, the new variant of the Omicron spreads quicker, but obviously not as uh, deadly as past variants, therefore not necessarily taxing the hospital system. Uh, That being said, uh, many are asking if it's time to open up for a fourth dose, and that's uh, for all eligible Ontarians. I believe it's 60 now uh, for the fourth dose, but to talk more about all of this, is it time to uh, roll up the sleeve again? Thomas Tenkate, professor school of occupational and public health, Toronto metropolitan university and with us now, Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes. Thanks Scott. Thanks for having me again. So Thomas, since we started all of this with age groups, should we just be doing that and keep doing that? Or is it time just to open it up and whoever wants one, go get one. Yeah. I, I think it's in some ways for me, it's it's a question of what does the science say versus what does the uh, was you know is it more of a research uh, resourcing question? So, so in in a lot of ways, you know, we're getting sort of mixed messages of, from from the different agencies on 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 you know eligibility criteria. So the federal government has sort of one set, uh, and then the different provinces are taking sort of different approaches. Uh, I think Quebec is opening up to everyone. Uh, whereas uh, Ontario is is uh, you know, progressively uh, uh, you know widening the eligi- eligibility, and so in some ways, you know, what I would say is you know from a science perspective, I think the science is sort of really saying well, there's benefits for for opening up the uh, the the vaccinations uh, the the you know the fourth booster to to a much broader range of people. Uh, so then the question is, you know, do we have the doses uh, available? And if we do, uh, you know, why not uh, make it available? Because you know, from a public health perspective, I'd say, you know, the more, you know, if if we can do that and it does prevent people uh, becoming ill with COVID, then, you know, it, it's, you know, justifiable. So, so I, yeah, there's, again, we're sort of into that sort of, uh, Sort of mixed messaging and uh, you know different uh, messages from different levels of government, different provinces, and, and whatever. So, so it, it, again, it's a more you know another confusing time for the for the public. What does NASI say about this? Yeah, th- so at the federal level, they're they're still holding firm to say uh, you know sort of I think it's sort of over over eighty and and you know and, and specific uh, you know high risk groups uh, and so. Whereas you know other you know the the so Ontario's uh, uh, sort of restriction or, or eligibility criteria is broader than what what the federal government is it's describing at the moment and but I think they're also like you were saying in your in your intro there that they're already looking to the fall and and saying we're, they're actually preparing for the fall and and saying we think we need to prepare for a fourth dose for a, a you know a broader range of people. Once, once we get into the fall, and so the question is, you know, when do you start? Do you wait for the fall, or do you start it? Do you start it uh, earlier? And so, you know, I think the debate is, well, if we wait, have we missed the boat? And and uh, and so, should we should we try and get in front of this now? Will this be like an annual, or is it becoming uh, like an annual updated flu shot? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think you know we we we're, we're in that situation now where we. We would be looking for a, at least an annual booster for for COVID, uh, whereas you know the 
so far the you know when we look at what's been happening with the with the vaccines they 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 actually haven't really sort of kept pace for for a you know a yearly booster it's it's been you know closer to six months or, or so so you know my you know and, and then you go well it, how realistic is it to to have people do six month boosters and you know and that's really not that realistic yeah. so uh you know and, and we've seen you know with each with each dose the the proportion of the eligible population getting it is is reducing and so 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 it's that balance of well, what's realistic what's doable while also trying to uh you know, protect as many people as possible you know my, you know for me like I think an easy easy thing to do would be really include sort of healthcare workers and workers in other high risk settings as being eligible you know right now because because you know I think you know health healthcare particularly hospital settings uh, are really still struggling and and uh, you know I think you know to to at least give them what the best protection we can now I think would be the way to go is supply still an issue uh is that still a problem well i think uh you know from the media reports that i've i've read uh it's sort of it's hard to actually get a sense of of how much stock that that we have in in ontario but but as far as i'm i understand you know if if we if we needed the doses you know we the from a from a supplier perspective the doses are available so so it just right. depends on what our stockpile is and and you know my sense is that we've we've got the stockpile there so so uh you know let's let's open it up for you know more you know sort of continue to uh widen the eligibility for for who can get the fourth dose i, I think you know and, you know i would say is if you're looking at uh healthcare workers i'm sure the healthcare workers will will want to get it the more general general public I think there's going to be, you know, sort of a little bit more resistance to that. So, right. uh, but overall, I think, uh, you know, even though right now the the, the uh, formulations are still on the, you know, based on the the original original uh, uh, variant, yeah. uh, and they're looking for new new formulations to at least catch up for for Omicron. Uh, in some ways, I would say. For, for you know let's try and protect the people we can with what we've got now and then roll out the the, the new formulations uh as as wide as we can once, once they're available uh you know in the in the fall thomas tenkate with us professor school of occupational and public health toronto metropolitan university talking about when it's time for the fourth dose thomas as always thanks for the time be well uh, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. Hope you had a great Canada Day long weekend, the first uh, official long weekend of the summer of 2022. Uh, our friends south of the border uh, celebrating their July 4th today as well. Uh, all the latest on, unfortunately, the shooting happening at that July 4th parade uh, just outside of Chicago. We'll have the details on that coming up again uh, at the bottom of the hour with Dave. Uh, but uh, for the most part, uh, in Canada, things uh, so far so good went pretty good for our Canada today weekend despite some thoughts about what could happen in ottawa how did they make out getting through uh the first canada day with uh for first canada day i guess post uh covid19 freedom convoy sort of thing uh what was it like let's bring in rachel gilmore national online journalist with global news she's with us now rachel thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you so much for having me so what was canada day like in ottawa this weekend 
So it was kind of a tale of two Canada days. If you went down to Le Breton Flats, it felt honestly pretty normal. A little bit of a smaller crowd than usual and a different venue because it's normally a Parliament Hill, which is under construction this year. Um, but, you know, it was just kind of the usual revelers, activities, concerts. The Prime Minister showed up, the Governor General. Um, it was all around just kind of a standard Canada Day. Um, but then if you marched up about uh, 20 minutes up the road and got to Parliament Hill, you'd see the um, the protesters that everyone had heard so much about ahead of Canada Day. So people protesting mandates that, for the most part, have been lifted, um, but they said they were concerned that they would come back, although the government hasn't really signaled much of an intention that that could be the case. Um, so that was definitely a different environment, um, but everyone was wearing the same colors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Waving the same flag. Um, yeah. <laughs> so how come how come they didn't hold the festivities at Parliament Hill, as you just mentioned, yet they were still having uh, like protesters there? So uh, like how uh, why not just have the party there? So honestly, because it, it's really ugly this year. <laughs> just because of the construction. Uh, Hill is under construction. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah. boarded up. It just doesn't look good. There's not as much space too because there's a yeah. really big kind of. Uh, fence up around the construction site um so there is that uh, and then i also do think that the protesters were probably a consideration for organizers Le Breton flats is a really big open space um mm-hmm. with sort of bigger roads um that are easier to access but also not as easily clogged as the ones by parliament hill so i'd expect that there was a multitude of considerations at play there so uh, did uh, one demonstration collide with the other? Was uh, was there any, uh, or did everybody stay in their own sort of part of the woods? Uh, I mean, a fair number of folks made their way up to Parliament Hill who were just kind of normal um, Canada Day celebrators. <laughs> That's the word, celebrators, celebrants. Um, they, uh, a lot of people went up there to take some pictures of uh, Parliament Hill. Even though it wasn't looking its best, you could still see the Peace Tower poking out. So, you know, a couple people wandered up for that. Um, we did see some clashes, um, nothing violent or extreme, but, you know, some some not so gentle words were at times exchanged between, uh, you know, locals or tourists and uh, the protesters. Um, but, you know, for the most part, the groups kind of kept to themselves. The protesters uh, had conversations or even arguments with uh, anyone who came up to them, but uh, were mostly kind of yelling in their own group. Um, yeah, so it, it was relatively uneventful in that sense. There were there were some clashes between the protesters and police the day before, and some arrests were made. But uh, the day of, it was uh, fairly uneventful, which I think we were all grateful for because Ottawa has been way too eventful in the last few months. It's normally a pretty boring city, so I think us locals are uh, <laughs> a little overtired hmm. from it all. So, were there any speeches or anything like that? Was there any sort of organization uh, around that, or were they just uh, people showing up to protest, and that was that? So it was a bit all over the place. I mean, there were speeches. Um, There was a speech by a uh, man named James Topp, who uh, has been walking across Canada in protest of vaccine mandates. Um, 
There was also uh, a small event at a park uh, just on the outskirts of downtown Ottawa, where I believe Maxime Bernier attended and others spoke there. Um, so there were speakers at, uh, you know, different places at different times. But uh, around Parliament Hill, people weren't allowed to set up speaker systems. So right. that definitely made it a bit more difficult to have the same kind of setup that they had back in February when they had a full-blown concert <laughs> um, in front of Parliament Hill and a stage set up at one point. Mm. Um, but you know there there were some speeches and uh, and activities in that sense. No bouncy castles, though. No, none that I saw. Maybe I missed them, but uh, I definitely <laughs> did not see any. <laughs> now, is it true, Rachel, that the citizens of Ottawa are being asked for uh, to do a survey their opinion on how uh, the convoy initially was handled? They're looking for feedback. Oh, you know what? I actually hadn't heard of that, but um, that would have surprised me. I mean, I do know that the Ottawa police has been uh, really trying to learn from uh, the mistakes made the, you know, with the Freedom Convoy, the so-called Freedom Convoy. Um, they had said that they deployed some of those lessons into their um, planning for Canada Day. Um, and then we've also got this sort of uh, Citizens Commission that's been set up in Ottawa that has been looking into the police's handling of the convoy um, because clearly there were a lot of issues. You know, the fact that they were able to dig into that extent and we didn't see a ton of police action in the early days, especially of the convoy coming to town. Um, citizens have and locals have been really critical of that. So that wouldn't surprise me one bit. I just somehow managed to miss that bit of news. <laughs> Rachel Gilmore with us, National Online Journalist with Global News, talking about the weekend Canada Day in the nation's capital. Rachel, Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tasha Carradine is going to join us, principal and navigator, lecturer with the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University and author of The Right Path. And if you go in and if you take a peek at the National Post today, uh, you can see an excerpt from her book as a uh, opinion piece, Tasha Carradine, Trudeau's True Legacy, Stoking the Woke. And Tasha is with us now. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Yes, thanks for having me on. So, uh, Stoking the Woke, first of all, explain that, explain your thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it, uh, apart from the alliteration, the reason I used it is because um, a lot of people don't necessarily understand how uh, populism comes to be. And it's not simply, um, you know, something people come up with out of thin air. It's also a reaction to situations. So, what I say is that Trudeau is kind of like Canada's Barack Obama, which might sound strange because they come from completely different backgrounds, but both of them championed what we would call identity or woke politics. And in both cases, they provoked a backlash. And I'm not just saying this, there's a lot of scholarship in the United States in particular that I researched for the book that established that, yes, um, there was a, a backlash against Barack Obama, which helped elect Donald Trump. Hmm. And I think there's a very similar situation here because happening. You see a lot of the energy and the anger in the convoy protests are not directed at the mandates per se. They're directed very personally at Justin Trudeau. And the reason for that is a lot of the actions he took while he was prime minister. And I go through those, um, you know, everything from his energy policies or his demonization of the oil sector to perceived hypocrisy about blackface and ethical scandals. Um, and all these things uh, really made people extremely angry and coupled with a pandemic the focus then became really on him personally to an extent we had not seen i think previously um in his uh, in his mandate 
Have you noticed the tone changing, especially in the media in the last several weeks? I'd say month, maybe two months. Um, is this still working? Is stoking the woke still working in a post-pandemic world? I don't think it is. I think that um, what you're seeing, uh, you know, the, apart from the populist backlash too, I interviewed a lot of young people for this book, young conservatives or youth who consider themselves potentially conservative. And uh, 201, they mentioned this kind of politics that they saw at university, not from Justin Trudeau per se, but um, identity politics in university, uh, sort of speech codes, things like that. They said that turned them off and made them feel that they you know, couldn't express themselves, uh, that, that they were being limited in what they, they could say or do. And that made them turn to look at conservatism. So there's certainly a reaction to that. I think it's very similar to political correctness, which was in vogue in the 1980s. I'm dating mm. myself now, but I remember that time um, when political correctness took hold and it was a big thing on campus. And there was a wave, especially in the U.S. and the Republican Party, young people reacting against that. So I think you're seeing a similar phenomenon now. And it's certainly um, in the book, like I said, I, I, a number of students told me that story. That that's what brought them to conservatism in the first place. It's interesting because I've had that conversation with my daughter. She says, I can only say certain things in certain circles. Otherwise, they, um, they'll talk down to her. It's bizarre. I thought it was the opposite at university where you share your thoughts <laughs> and you have those kind of debates, but apparently not. Anyway, um, what I really noticed and when I really started to see this change, uh, especially uh, with the Ontario election, I mean, if you look at the top five issues, of the Ontario election, they're all well, obviously healthcare is always in there, but um, they were all basically economic issues. Where if you you look at the top five issues of the federal election, which was during the pandemic, it was all social issues. So I, I think people are at the point where they're they're really changing their priorities in a post-pandemic world, and it, and it's what are you going to do for me now? Enough of the uh, form. Where's the substance? Do you feel that? happening as we get out of this? Uh, I think there's definitely because of the uh, economic situation we're in with inflation at levels we haven't seen in 40 years, um, you know, the labor shortage that we have, which is causing all sorts of upheavals in industries and the airline industry is a perfect example, but the restaurant sector as well, the agricultural sector, you know, business, certain businesses can't find workers. Um, workers were not around during the pandemic or were laid off and they just, they're not coming back or they have to be trained up. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of upheaval. And I think that makes people very anxious. And that anxiety is something that also feeds into the sort of populist currents. When you look at the research, um, populism is not because of necessarily uh, inequality per se. It's a sense of people not having a fair shot, that they feel that things are stacked against them uh, or there are barriers, which explains, you know, like Pierre Polyev's speeches about remove the gatekeepers, right? That is not a new thing. We've heard that throughout history. It's always like there's some group that's standing in the way, get rid of them and all will be well. If it were only that simple, it is not. Um, what really needs to happen is for people to have a quality of opportunity and social mobility. And then they feel that, you know what? I have a fair shot. Even if I don't get there, I know nothing's rigged. The game is not rigged for identity politics. It's not rigged for elites. It's not rigged for anyone. So that sense, I think the sense of I can't get ahead, even though I'm doing everything right, is what's upsetting people, especially with inflation. You know, it's like you save your money, but it's worth less. So at the end of the day, you've done the right thing, but you're still further behind. And that makes people very frustrated. 
I also think this is another issue where the Prime Minister seems out of touch in the sense with energy prices, gas prices, thus pushing up the price of everything. And he seems to be the only leader that is not talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an easy one, right? I mean, you just don't don't raise the tax or drop the tax. Mm. It's the government's only lever on this. I mean, the whole world is grappling with high energy prices. The whole world is grappling with inflation. I mean, this is not a Canadian thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is everywhere. So use the levers at your disposal. And if even if people will say, well, it's, how effective will it be? You know, gas companies will just raise the price to compensate for it. Well, A, you don't know that. And B, mm. the point is, if you don't do anything, people will say, well, you could have. So why didn't you? So I think that's part of the issue. It seems that um, the prime minister has embraced divisiveness. Um, He doesn't mind calling that out. You know, divisiveness means you're not thinking like me. Therefore, you're not necessarily thinking correctly. Is he a divisive leader? Uh, Yes, I think Justin Trudeau has been very divisive. And um, there's this expression in the United States from Thomas Sowell, a writer there, um, that's been quoted previously in in, in uh, books up here in Canada about the benighted, the anointed versus the benighted. And it hmm. sounds like big words, but anointed means that people who think they are morally superior, that they have, uh, you know, they have the right vision for society if only everyone would listen to them. The benighted are people that would be considered perhaps like in the U.S., the deplorables that Hillary Clinton called them, people who are maybe not as educated or not as sophisticated, and they are looked down on by the anointed who say, well, you know, we know best. Let us tell you how to live. Um, And that attitude, as opposed to offering people choices or, you know, empowering them, it's talking down to them. We saw that a lot with the reaction of the convoy protesters to Trudeau. Now, I mean, I, I certainly... Um, have my own views on on the convoy protests. And I don't think that, you know, uh, everyone was there for necessarily the right reasons. I think a lot of people were, uh, but I think a lot of people weren't too. So you couldn't just simply have Trudeau wade into the crowd and just talk to everyone. I, you know, yeah. I don't think that would have been the answer. But I think that he could have had more of an effort to say, you know what, the people who are here, who f- I feel your pain. I understand a lot of you. The rest of you who are bad apples, like go home, like leave. Yeah. So, I, yeah, but he didn't do that. He just said, I'm, I'm avoiding you completely. The conservatives are the opposite. They embraced pretty much everything, which I also think was wrong. So, you know, you got to find the middle way. And that's the book's actually dedicated to my father who had the saying. He always said to me, take the middle way. And I never really fully understood that actually until now, because it's not about saying, you know, mushy middle. It's more find the way forward that you can bring the most people to your cause for the best, you know, the best good and still stay to your principles, but bring them in there so that they can follow you there. So I think that's what the Conservative Party really has to do is take its principles and appeal to that center right base that is waiting for some some vision and something to vote for. Waiting is accurate. Uh, Tasha Carradine with us, principal at Navigator, lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, and author of The Right Path. You can read some excerpt or a excerpt in the National Post today. Tasha, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. If you want more info, go to the rightpathbook.com. You can find it there. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, here we are. Um, what is it? Let me look here. I think we're up to about uh, day 136 
of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, many thought that it would not last this long. However, at this point, it just seems to drag out and grind away. And you wonder if this continues, is it just a matter of time before Russia continues to nibble away at uh, Ukraine? Can this keep going for any uh, any length of time, a- any longer? Let's bring in Dr. Lubomir Luchik, professor with the Royal Military College of Canada, and with us now. Lubomir, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Thank you, Scott. So, you know, obviously we've seen this just grind on and grind on and grind on. Can this continue on for any length of time? Um, and is is it just a matter of time before Russia just nibbles away at this? Well, you know, the Russian objective ostensibly was to gain territory in the Donbass, in the southeast. They began this war over four months ago by attacking Ukraine on several fronts and, of course, losing on all those fronts. They've now geographically concentrated their attack and they've been doing a bit better because they're overwhelming in terms of their numbers and in terms of the artillery tubes they have and missiles they can fire and so on. It's, it's at least 10 to 1 advantage for the Russian side. On the other hand, the Ukrainians are fighting for their homes and their homeland. They're fighting a very capable and competent battle and they are withdrawing in order to save lives. They're trying not to squander their soldiers in senseless battles defending rubble. So they've pulled back Mm. from a few cities. Obviously, no one wants to see them give up Ukrainian territory, but I think it's a strategic move. And as President Zelensky has said, it's intended to conserve the military might of Ukraine for the coming counterattack with uh, Western military hardware now moving into Ukraine in large quantities with the Ukrainian forces becoming ever more competent and battle-hardened, I think we will see a counterattack and eventually the Russians will be pushed back out of Ukrainian territory. So uh, we've certainly heard of of allies offering help. Uh, We've also heard Zelensky say not fast enough, uh, not quick enough. Um, Are they just holding on or are they making advances? Uh, Will Ukraine win this? Oh, I think in in many ways they've already won it in the sense that uh, Ukraine has never been as united as it is now. Uh, From east to west, all parts of Ukraine, there is a national will there that is really amazing for someone like me who's watched Ukraine for many decades, never seen anything like this. Um, It's a common threat, and so there's a common response. Now, you know, as in any country at war, there are going to be collaborators, there are going to be cowards, there are going to be people who flee rather than fight. But overwhelmingly, there's national unity around President Zelensky and around the the self-defense of Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine didn't invade the Russian Federation. Ukraine didn't start this war. Ukraine didn't ask for this war. Ukraine simply wants to be left alone. Ukraine has no claims against the Russian Federation. This is all because of the KGB man in the Kremlin. He started this war and he's caused un imaginable destruction of human life and property and and suffering and has to pay for it. So I think President Zelensky's response that, you know, we will give up territory means saving lives, but we have every intention of reclaiming all of Ukraine from the invaders is one that resonates with the Ukrainian public and with the Ukrainian diaspora as well. Now, it's true. Western support is coming. It's coming too slow. Uh, you know, imagine if your house is on fire, you want every fire department in the region mm. to be there 
pouring water on the flames. Um, Ukrainians are fighting, desperately fighting. Um, they are being overwhelmed in the sense that the the proportion of soldiers against them is huge. I mean, again, you know, you can be the best soldier in the world, but if you're fighting 10 others on the right. other side, you know, other than a Rambo movie, you're probably not going to do very well. Uh, they need to get more equipment. They need to regroup. They need to rest to some degree if they can and take the fight back to the enemy, which they, I'm fairly confident, will do. And that will then see the Russian forces who are, after all, low on morale and are starting to actually run out of weapons themselves. They're firing missiles at civilian centers as an act of terror. Russia has now declared a terrorist state. Uh, they no longer have as many precision munitions as they used to have. So they're just holus bolus firing at anything that moves, basically, hoping to break the will of the Ukrainian nation. And it's not working. It's actually not working. I mean, as you said at the beginning, everybody expected this war to be over in 100 hours. It's gone more than 100 days. It's four and a half months almost now. Uh, and Ukrainians don't show any sign at all. And I, and I check this daily of throwing in the towel or saying, well, all right, we've lost. There's just nothing like that. They took Snake Island back just the other day. Yeah, I saw that. Small game, but it, it's a game, right? Dr. Lubomir Luchik with us, Professor of Royal Military College of Canada, giving us an update on Ukraine. As always, Lubomir, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we've been talking a lot, uh, especially of late, about uh, natural resources uh, in this country, specifically with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, uh, and Europe's dependency on uh, Russian fuel, uh, obviously dirtier, uh, lots of coal through Europe as well that they're trying to get off of. So Canada has been approached uh, by Germany uh, at the G7 to to offer something up, to get some liquid natural gas to parts of the world which uh, are relying on Russia. And we know where that goes. So let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks very much, Scott. Everything's doing fabulously. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson says two private pro sector proposals for liquid uh, natural gas from Canada's east coast to uh, Europe uh, will have to go on without federal financing. Does this matter? How important is this? Uh, it could be important. It should be important. We claim, the government of Canada claims that it is shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine and Europe in opposing uh, Putin and Russia's illegal invasion of a sovereign country. Um, and we know that uh, for the sanctions to work, to really work, uh, to become more effective, uh, Western countries that are opposed must stop Russian the sale of Russian oil and natural gas. That's what's keeping the Russian government afloat. There's a billion dollars a day, a day, U.S. flowing into Russia's uh, government coffers from the sale of Russian oil and Russian natural gas. So we've got enormous amounts of oil and natural gas in Canada. I believe we have over 200 years of uh, reserves of uh, natural gas. And so there's an obvious, um, uh, uh, we're part of a, uh, it seems obvious that we're part of the solution to a weaning Europe and especially Germany off of natural gas. You can hear the skepticism in what I've said so far, and it's based uh, completely on the comments 
of Mr. Wilkinson and the uh, environment minister, natural resources minister, and um, and the and the the policies of this government over the last uh, four years. But let me just very quickly get right to the point. For this, us to export LNG gas to Europe, liquefied natural gas, we need an export terminal, and uh, there is only one under construction. We have no actual operating LNG terminals in Canada. And for this proposed terminal to be built on the East Coast to ship liquefied natural gas to Europe is going to require that they obtain a supply of natural gas. And that comes from from the Western Canada, from Alberta. And it is on the record that they're going to have to go to the existing pipeline companies who will have to uh, enhance their pipeline capacity to get that uh, natural gas down to the East Coast to put it into the LNG terminals, to put it under the boats, to send it over to Europe. And so we, we know certainly know that this government is not into building pipelines and is exactly. just continually exactly. shut things down and shut things down. Is there is this tide changing? Is there now pressure on this government, on this prime minister, to open this back up, to develop this infrastructure as opposed to shutting it down? I believe that the climate is changing. I believe the pressure is changing enormously. But if you're asking me, do I believe that the government of Canada is doing an about face, is changing its policy? I don't. Uh, I've read it through very carefully what Wilkinson said. And he's saying, well, you know, it's still, you know, we're we're okay with this. But by the way, no money of support for the private sector uh, to build the LNG terminal. Okay, I, I can accept that. But then he goes further and he says, but, but it must meet our, our net zero carbon 2050 yeah. and uh, the restrictions, the great, much greater restrictions that are in the bill passed two years ago by this government, the so-called no pipeline bill. And then you get to the end of the uh, of the analysis of this and you find out, no big surprise, that the uh, Engos, such as the Sierra Club, are absolutely opposed. We know what they're going to do. So sure who wins this tug of who wins this tug of war, Ian? Because is this just again death by a thousand delays? Uh, how does this move forward? Because it seems the prime minister's office is just it's in one ear and out the other. I don't think it's going to go forward. I am very cynical. I believe that this is a uh, uh, they're doing this for the optics that it is uh, there because they don't want to be seen to be opposed to Ukraine. There are a million. Uh, voters in Canada of Ukrainian descent, including Christia Freeland, by the way. And so I think what they are doing is, you know, they're, 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 they're on both sides of the issue simultaneously. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge to their environmental group supporters. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going to do anything different. We're not changing our policy, knowing that the Angos will go to court and delay this till the end of time. They'll just go to court as they've done in the past, like they did on Keystone. So, what about and, what about alternative fuels, Ian? Like, is there a choice here? Is there? A, are we pretending that there's a choice? Is there a choice? Yes. Do, do we send yes. them turbines and, and and solar panels? What's the? What? How do we change this? Well, we, there, we are pretending that. In fact, Sierra Club and some of the other environmental groups said, "Look, we've got to develop alternatives." Well, you can't ship alternative electricity to Europe. First off, the Germans no. are already investing in it, and it's going to take uh, a lot of time. It's going to end, and remember, it's the same old problem you and I have talked about. The wind doesn't always blow, and the sun doesn't always shine, and we have not yet made a breakthrough in storage, mass storage. 
and the Germans shut down nuclear, many environmental groups are opposed to nuclear. And so every serious study I've seen, including the former natural resources minister under Mr. Trudeau a year ago, Seamus O'Regan, said his own public servants, professionals, said there is absolutely no way Canada can get to net zero 2050 without nuclear. And, and Europe is not going to get to, to zero Russian oil or natural gas without uh, liquefied natural gas from other countries such as Canada and nuclear. And environmental groups are opposed to both. And so I don't believe that this is going to go forward. I believe that this is the government is posturing so that they can say, oh, no, no, we're on the side of Ukraine and Europe. At the same time, they're saying to their supporters who don't want this, don't worry. It's, I think that they're saying wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's not going to happen because we're not going to relinquish our standards one iota. And that's what Wilkinson said in the last uh, uh, seven days ago, seven days on this subject. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about uh, getting Canadian liquid natural gas to Europe where it is needed. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. But was it a different Canada Day this year? Uh, I guess it was in the sense that we could all go out. And over the last two and a half years, um, there was stuff going on that we haven't seen in a while. But still some alternate versions of of the the past celebration. But uh, where's Canada's mindset uh, after this Canada Day? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Your thoughts this post Canada Day, Henry? Is it is it different? Was there as much uh, uh, patriotism uh, patriotism as we've seen? What were your thoughts about this one after two and a half years of what we've been through? Well, I think certainly there was uh, some people who were quite patriotic over over the weekend. Uh, we saw some of that in in different places. Um, I think relief is probably the uh, the best uh, word to use. Relief and people trying to get back to you know normal life. And have not having been able to do that for about three years is, you know, really there's all this pent up uh, energy, you know, to try to get back to it, and and uh, and to the extent that people are able to do that, they feel great. Are we too divisive to celebrate Canada Day, or do, during a Canada Day, a Canada Day, do we just all let, let that slide and just enjoy ourselves and get out the red and white? Yeah, well, I think for most people they would. Now, of course, we know the, the indigenous population, you know, points out the the fact that you know Canada, you know, as as a country, uh, you know, as basically is, you know, at the expense for many people of of things that happen to them. That's how they see it, and they think that you know there's there needs to be some consideration and some some uh, reconciliation and compensation for various things and. Uh, so a number of them aren't aren't very happy. Although it's sometimes hard to tell how how many you know Aboriginal people uh, feel that way. Certainly, a lot of the activists do, and they there's a good number of them that come out and you know put on uh, you know their orange orange clothes, I guess, and uh, to show that uh, you know they're they're not very happy with uh, Canada right now. Um, do you think that people feel different about the flag now? We, we had that discussion, uh, you know, the people were, th- you know, b- with the Canadian flag and it being used during uh, protests and convoys. People were were feeling, uh, you know, I even heard someone say, take back the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, you know I, I look down at the U.S. and what's going on down there. And, it, you know, I don't think they're having these sorts of discussions about their flag. No, uh, yeah, well, I think it's because the, the protests we have here 
have had you know basically one 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 flag. I mean, there were some uh, a few other odd ones, including you know the Confederate war flag was up in 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 Ottawa, but that was very rare. And so the most dominant one, and and the protesters said, listen, uh, Canada should be a country that guarantees people's freedoms, and and basically the government is not doing things that uh, that follow that you know that that sort of principle. They're they're making us do all sorts of things we don't want to do, and it's it's very unfair. The U.S. I think is a bit different because you get into all sorts of different flags down in the United States. We could just see if you ever watched the the January 6th riots. There's plenty of footage there. But you just see that there's Confederate flags. There's uh, particular groups have their own flags. You do have the American flag, sure, around there. But there's a lot of different flags. And so it's uh, there's a lot of, you know, there, it's um, it's not as clear that uh, that there's a fight over one flag. It's just that there's a number of flags down there. Well, I, I don't know. You know, you look at the January 6th footage, I'd say the majority of the flags were American. There were some Trump flags and whatever, but, I mean, the majority are, are American, and we certainly know what happened January 6th and, and what happened with then. I'm not sure Americans are going, well, I feel differently about our flag now since it was used during the January 6th riots. Uh, you know, whereas uh, Canada, we have that discussion for some reason. Yeah, we do. I mean, I think... You know, we have a relatively new flag compared to the Americans, so they've had a long history of a, mm-hmm. of a certain kind of flag. But I do think, you know, the, the Americans who who are critical, for example, of the the people who protested most vigorous, you know, the people who who are most were most vigorous, you know, opponents to them, uh, and want them to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, were were probably upset. They were spotting all the Confederate flags, and there were Confederate armbands, and there was a lot of confederate you know the confederate war uh, mm-hmm. mo- mo- um, things there in, in the in the race so i do think i think uh, the, so the american flag i think didn't have that you know had that competitor who what's the flag of protest in the united states and for there was a you know competition is it the confederate war flag or is it the uh, you know the um, the uh, the the original type of flag that the americans have and so for for many americans they 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 viewed the the rebels, the Southern rebels during uh, the War of the Confederacy, um, you know, as as their as their standard bearer, you know, as their standard to wave around. So we don't again, we don't have we don't have that. I mean, we don't have a competing flag, even though we have a new flag. We don't have a competing mm. flag. It's a fight over who, what is the real identity of our flag. Hey, you know what we should do, Henry? We should bring out the Union Jack again and start waving that around. That's li- that's liable to to get a few people ruffled up. Come on, it's yeah. the Canadian flag against the Union Jack. I, I don't know. But um, you know, this is interesting. There, it is interesting. It's surprising to me how how the how the Union Jack has disappeared in Canada. I mean, mm-hmm. I, if you look at footage, I look at a lot of footage, say going back, you know, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years ago. You still lead, saw a lot of the British. Uh, the British flag, the Union Jack, yeah. and and it has really, really disappeared from from Canada, and particularly from Ontario, because of uh, you know of all the provinces, uh, Ontario, uh, you know, probably can you know be seen as sort of the leader of the, in terms of a British oriented uh, Canada, and that, it has just disappeared. I mean, I when I go around, I don't see you know British flags anywhere. The Union That's Jack a good point. on people's uh, on people's front porches. Fifty years ago, I'm sure we would have seen that. I wonder if there were fewer Canadians flying a Canadian flag this Canada Day. 
Yeah, there might have been. I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think I noticed that. I thought there should have been more. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to interpret that, why, why there may, be, may have been less. I, I think probably a lot of people are trying to, we're essentially looking at, uh, you know, the 1st of July and saying, this is, this is the real vacation I'm going to have. This is a real enjoying, <laughs> enjoyable su- summer I'm going to have, and I want to just get to it, and let's get past all the political symbolism and the national symbolism. Yeah. I want to get out of there, and uh, certainly, you know, and I've, I've seen, uh, you know, all the people leaving up to go up north over the last few days, uh, you know, and uh, there's a lot of places where people are just, uh, you know, you know, disappeared. I mean, driving around Ham- Hamilton this, this morning, I said, where, where has all the traffic <laughs> gone? There's nobody on the streets. You know, Everybody's gone on vacation, Henry. That's it. Up, they've gone up north. That's the most important thing. Like, we ought to make the symbol is that a uh, a cottage up in northern Ontario. Maybe there you go. Af- Af- yeah, and after two and a half years of uh, of a pandemic, uh, obviously people are looking to get out of Dodge. Uh, it exactly. is Henry J. Six been here, professor of political science, McMaster University, checking the the mood of Canadians this post Canada Day. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Very good. Enjoy enjoy your July. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is here, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. How are you feeling? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. I understand you've got the COVID. Are we allowed to talk about that? Well, sure. I mean, it's yes, I, I did a positive test, and I got to tell you, I'm like, this is what all the fuss is about. I know some people had it way worse, but... Um, I, you know, I cough every few minutes and, um, and I'm a little more tired than usual, but otherwise it's like, if this is what it, you know, again, I know people got it worse, but if me is what we shut the country down for, man, oh man. It certainly helps when you're vaccinated. That's for sure. So did this happen when you were out East? Obviously. I suspect so. I gotta tell you, Air Canada did all they could to prevent me from getting it on one of their planes by canceling at the last minute and then losing my luggage. And then putting me on a different oh, flight no. that had a layover, which then had a delay. So thank you to them. Uh, Pearson Airport, complete disaster. Avoid oh, Pearson Airport with everything you have is all my great advice would be on that one. But, um, yeah, I think I probably got it out east. And, and it's, it's, you know. Uh, so how did you find out you had it? Why did you, did you, did you, did you were coughing, so then you took the test? Well, you know, I... I, I I have a wife who cares for me, and when I came home and I coughed, I think, twice, she says, test time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, quarantine for daddy. (laughs) Out came the little stick up the nose, and uh, a few minutes later, the bar went crazy, like, immediately. So I was like, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. That's something. So so you're quarantined in parts of the house. So uh, when did you, when did this happen? When did you first uh, test positive? Uh, uh, let's see. I got home Thursday afternoon, so it would have been uh, it would have been uh, thirty minutes roughly after getting home <laughs> on Thursday. <laughs> I'm surprised you got in the front door. Uh, hang on a sec. Let's do this first. <laughs> There's the hand and the and the Q-tip coming out the door. Pretty, pretty uh, much, yeah. Couple, like protect your nostrils because if you step forward with that thing, you're going to poke yourself in the pituitary. Oh man. So, uh, we, do we, have you tested recently, or do you still have it, or any idea? Uh, I, I I basically feel the same now as I did this. See, here's the thing. I mean, when I was out there for the Memorial Cup, I was working a lot and. Yeah, uh, you know, people. It's you know, I don't expect you when you're writing on deadline with a game. 
and you're going to have minutes. You've got to have a, a column ready to go if they win, a column ready yeah. to go if they lose, and a column yeah. ready to go in the event it goes to overtime, and you've got to put something in the paper at deadline time. So you're doing a lot of work, and I was just thinking, I'm getting old and can't keep up just with it. Just get run down, yeah. And it turns out, no, I, I mean, I am, but it turns out it was probably the COVID that was causing me to feel so fatigued because that's to me that's the one yeah. primary thing i'm feeling is i just feel tired um but as for all the like again I, i'm not mocking people who have had it either marginally or really seriously i i'm not i'm not making fun of them i really am not but mm-hmm. uh for me it's it's like the lightest possible case imaginable so, so what about the rest of the family are they oh, they had it long ago and that's why <laughs> i thought you know i'm like superhuman they all had it i was in the house with them i never got it I must and you didn't it. get it i never got it i that's never got bizarre. it and here's the thing we were on a we, we went on our my wife and i and some friends and my mom went on a cruise a few weeks ago yeah. just before the memorial cup and yeah. all we wanted was not to have a positive test because yeah. you had to have a, a test done to get onto the ship and all we're thinking is please not now (laughs) i know yeah not now and as soon as i got past that i was like fine at this point i don't care anymore if i get it i get it and here you go so you made it through the cruise no problem and then you go to uh new brunswick and blammo there you go well new brunswick maybe new brunswick is the world hot spot i don't know at this point or maybe it was just uh the extra people at the airport uh whatever airport you happen to be in at that time man oh man that's i will tell you the saint first of all saint john is a lovely little place and the airport there is delightful and i mean if all airports operated like that one or even like hamilton because it's not it's even smaller than hamilton yeah um flying would be a real pleasure still i mean the people were wonderful you go through security it's easy you get on the you walk out and you get on the plane. It's a beautiful little place. Uh, but as I say, the the Pearson experience. Oh man, what an and, and every person I've talked to who's been through Pearson recently, pretty much has said the same thing. It's like, tell me when this is over and I'll consider flying out of there again. But as for right now, I will I will avoid Pearson if there's any if I have to fly somewhere and there is literally any other option. I will avoid it. And I didn't even have to go internationally. I was doing domestic, and it was... I think domestic domestic can be worse, though, because, um, you know, that's, you know, with their short staff, they need it to to put on international flights to make sure they connect, because if they don't connect, then it screws up the whole system everywhere. So I think the domestic flights are taking the the brunt of this. Maybe, maybe, but it was... Say not. I, I love traveling. I generally do. Uh, not a pleasurable uh, experience in any way. Uh, until you, know, you got out there and got to deal with the lovely people in St. John, who were beautiful people, and it was a wonderful place to visit. And you know, leave aside the COVID part. It's it, it's if you get a chance to go to St. John, I don't know if you've ever been out there. It's it's wonderful. Beautiful. Any place. place out east, man. It's beautiful out there, and and the people, like you say, it's it's there. They're as friendly as friendly can be. It's the most we, friendly had, place in Canada. Up, yeah, they had set up for the Memorial Cup this shuttle service, this volunteer shuttle service. And you just, if you had a media pass or were a VIP or whatever, all you got this number and it just says call if you need to ride anywhere. And the one time we're getting a ride to the rink, I think one day from the hotel. And we asked the question, and the guy goes, hey, if you want to go, I'll take you there. And it was like four hours he was willing to drive to take it. Like, I'm not doing that to you. Well, lovely attitude. Really appreciate you're that kind. I'm not making you drive me four hours to Newfoundland or something. I don't know what. I can't even remember what we asked about. But they were willing. Like, this is, this is what it's all about. They were out there. 
if you said, you know, I, I really need a ride to Montreal, the guy would have gone, okay, let's go. <laughs> there you have it. There's your real Canada Day right there. That's uh, 100%. Scott, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, uh, have a great show and hope you're feeling better, even though you're really not that bad. Made it through this whole segment without a single cough, so there you go. Good for you. You're on the men. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave and to you for listening. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This is Tony. If you send the clean and natural gas from Canada... And it's supposed to be a lot cleaner than the European or North uh, Russian or Middle Eastern gas. Then that cleaner natural gas would affect all the world and not just Canada. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.